Before we begin the sermon this morning, I just want to reinforce what Pastor Steve already shared with us this morning about the college. It's a wonderful place to learn. Um, you come to church to learn and you hear, you hear sermons. But what's good about the college is that it, it takes you through any particular subject systematically. So you get the whole thing over, over a period of time worked out in your head, which means you then have a great foundation to build from. And this is the, the problem that a lot of people sort of have who try to work things out themselves and then fall into all types of errors because they don't have a lot of the foundational stuff in place first. So you try to build on something with no foundation, it eventually falls apart. Or people go into weird and wonderful uh, uh, rabbit trails. But I've been, uh, I am a, a still a student at the college, one of the longest serving students, I think, in the history of the college. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it is a, a blessing to be, uh, <coughs> to be involved with it and also uh, to be at the receiving end of all, uh, all the great teaching as well. Now, if you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> and we'll read from verse 1 to 19 this morning. Let's read. What shall we say then? <clears throat> shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we had been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall, also, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that we should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know you not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, he servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to be able to look into your word, to learn from it, and to grow stronger by it, Lord. We pray this morning that our ears would be attentive, our hearts would be open to it, and that your spirit would be teaching us your truths. I pray that we'd be willing to accept those truths. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless each and every person here this morning, that you would bless them with your word, you bless them with the fellowship that we have here in you, and that we would leave this place stronger in the faith. Thank you once again for this wonderful opportunity to open up your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask 
Donk, if you could uh, do that, I don't want to go blind in one eye before the end of the sermon. You could. <clears throat> this passage we've just read refers to how a Christian is to use their mortal body or their flesh. What does it mean when a person is saved? What does it mean for the flesh? What does it mean for our, for our mortal bodies? There's a, uh, there's a passage in here. I think I've just, I've just noticed it now. Where he says, look at uh, verse 14. Okay, verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. <clears throat> I often think about what it would have been like for Lazarus once he had died to then find himself alive again. We, we see this sometimes occurring and we see the result of people having either near-death experiences or... Or times in their lives where, they, where such a dramatic event has occurred in their life that all of a sudden they have a totally different view on life. They change. The way they think about the world changes. They all of a sudden think in a very different way. Um, and this, this particular verse I think is saying something very similar to that. Think of yourselves as having come back from the dead. How would you be? You've got now a second chance at life. And God has given us that chance which we didn't have before. Most people go through their whole life not realising the important things. And you would agree with me that you know people that go through their entire lives missing out on the important things. They think certain things are important. They go chasing after those things. They go spending all their resources and time and effort thinking that by trying to obtain those things that they achieve happiness and fulfilment. But oftentimes they're chasing rabbits. Oftentimes they're chasing the wind and they never get what they hope for and they go from one disappointment to another never having understood the important things in life and then there are some some people who have near-death experiences they come back and they have a totally different view on life or look at life instead of chasing after money and those things which are only temporary for them things such as family and love are important now, the Christian has been given a deeper view than that. The Christian has been given a view of eternity. And they've looked at that. God's given them a glimpse of eternity. And God has said, I'm going to raise you from the dead right now. You were dead in your sins. I'm going to make you alive. Now, the question remains for us is, how then do we spend our time? How then do we use these bodies, which we have, which only have a few years left in them? Because regardless of what age you're at, we only have a few years. The Bible says that life is like a puff of smoke. It's here one day and gone tomorrow. How do we use these bodies and this time that we have, which is so limited? Now, this is a continuing discussion about who we are. Um, and we've been looking at the foundation of who man is. And we've started looking at the tripartite nature of man. That God has made us in a certain way. He's made us with a spirit, a soul and a body. And understanding that as a foundation helps us to understand why we do the things we do. Why man is the way he is. And if we understand how God works with those different parts of, of, of us. And how we respond with, different, with, uh, with those, those parts that form us as people. Then we are more likely to live lives that are honouring to the Lord. Today we're going to be looking at the body. We've looked at the spirit. Last week we talked about the soul. And now we're looking at the body. And you might think, mm, the body, I know what the body is. But do we know what the body is? I mean, philosophers, philosophers struggle with the whole concept of the flesh and even reality itself. I know um, just recently there was an article in the, in the newspaper and the news that scientists have struggled with, astronomers especially, have struggled with the fact that there's so little matter in the universe. 
The universe is a pretty big place, isn't it? But there's so little out there. According to their calculations, there should be a whole lot of other stuff sort of happening out there. And I think an Australian scientist found out just recently that there's a lot more matter out there than what they've been seeing. And she's found it in a particular way. Actually, she was an undergraduate as well. So she's been able to, to answer a question that has, that has caused most astronomers to struggle. What is matter? What is, why is that hard? Why do our bodies... Why do we have substance? What, what makes us different to, a, to the spirit world or to, to another type of, uh, of, of material? And for those of you who are budding scientists out there, and you know, there are things such as there's matter and there's antimatter. There's something that's the actual opposite, which they know exists, the opposite of matter. What is it? For us, we're looking at this particular uh, subject today in the view of understanding why we do the things we do and why has God made us this way. And there are two basic opposite views and extreme views that both fall into error about the body. The first view, which is the, the so-called scientific view, evolutionary view, is that the body is all there is. There's no such thing as a spirit and a soul. When you die, that's it. When the body's dead, there is no more you. This is the evolutionary view. This view tells us that we are basically just smarter animals. God, not, not God made us, but we are just a smarter, evolved animal. The fact that we're here today is pretty much a waste of time because we're talking about things that really don't exist. And the best thing you can do in life is make the most of the few years you have, be smart, enjoy yourself as much as you possibly can, and just, when you die, that's it. No more. The problem with that specific view is that it leads to very, very fundamental errors. You see, a lot of uh, leaders in the world, a lot of um, uh, political uh, systems have been formulated with that view in mind, that man is just a smarter animal. And then what happens is, when you're looking at a society, then that, that animal, that smarter animal, then just becomes a means to an end. There's no inherent worth in life. Nothing special about you. You're just useful to a certain extent. And Eddie brought this up. We actually were having a discussion about it at, uh, at Bible College of the night. He actually pointed out that when, he, when he's, he's, been, he's read Plato's Republic, okay, for those of you who... Uh, and Eddie likes to read those sorts of books. But Plato's Republic, which goes way back, which is where we get the foundation for our democratic system, actually talks about, really, the usefulness of the individual. And that when they reach a stage where they're beyond their usefulness to society, they have an obligation to die. If, you're not, you're, if you are no longer useful to society, then you've got an obligation just to say, all right, I'm ready to go now because I can't help anyone anymore. That's why people get worried about things such as euthanasia. See, if the same error leads to believing that abortion is right, then the same error will lead you eventually to say, well, you know, old people really aren't any use to society. I mean, we should all be here to try to, to, to build up our society and, and to make it better. Old people are just draining our resources. So let's just, why don't we just get them out of the way? So the same error leads to... Well, the same idea leads to the same types of error. The other extreme, which is what sometimes Christians fall into, is that the body is just a vehicle. It's like a car. Jump in it, close the door, drive along, smash the car, doesn't matter, I'm just getting out and, and jumping into another car later on anyway. So they view the body as just a vehicle that can be later discarded or is of no use because we're dying anyway. So it doesn't really matter whether I don't have to look after myself. I don't have to really um, make use of this particular body because, hey, God's going to give me a new one later on. 
So I'll just neglect it. The truth is that, <coughs> according to Scripture, that we are made up of spirit, soul and body. Your body is an integral part of who you and I are. If we are detached from our mortal bodies, we are not in a natural state. That's not the natural way that we are meant to be. And those who are now detached from their bodies, let's say their, their bodies have died and are decaying in the grave, and they're either in hell or in heaven, that's not a natural way to be. Because God created us. He didn't create us spirits like the angels. God created us human, which means we are meant to have a physical body. We were created physical beings. Our natural state is physical. There was a group of, of people that was very prevalent in the New Testament era when, they, when, the, when the epistles were being written, when the gospels were being written by the apostles who were called the Gnostics. Anyone heard of the Gnostics before? Hmm. The Gnostics had a pretty interesting view about the body. They thought, or their belief was, that anything physical, anything material was inherently evil and useless. That was their main belief. Because it was only the spirit part that was good. The physical part was evil. And it wasn't possible to use it for good. Their view about the physical body was so strong that for those who... And, and Gnostics have a way or had a way of actually infiltrating established religious systems. Gnostics go all the way back to ancient Egypt. But they managed when, when they got a hold of Christianity and they saw what was, um, what was going on, the fact that it was growing, what they did was they latched on to Christianity and they formed their own opinions about who Jesus was and what salvation meant. And Gnostics had this very strong belief that you are saved by what you know. You, salvation comes through knowledge. But they, their view of the body led them to believe that Jesus Christ was not one person but two. That Jesus was one person and Christ was another person. That Jesus was the physical representation, or was Jesus the, in, in the body was one, and Christ was the spirit part, who was the, the, the higher, let's say, came upon the physical Jesus at his baptism and then left him before the crucifixion. Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But you know something? It was a common error in those days. It was spreading very quickly, and this is why we find the New Testament. Some of, some of the Gospel writers actually wrote directly to oppose that view. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. John here is speaking really directly against the Gnost this Gnostic error that was infiltrating the church. And he says in verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, whereof you had heard that he should come, and even now already is in the world. John was addressing a specific error that was trying to infiltrate the church, that this Christ and Jesus couldn't be the same person because anything that was flesh was evil. Now, Scripture teaches... That the flesh is weak. Okay? The flesh is corrupted. The flesh is dying and decaying. But it doesn't teach that the flesh is useless. 
and evil. It can be used to glorify God. Turn back to the original chapter that I read out at the beginning, Romans chapter 6. Well, let's look at two of those verses. And this is the, the foundation for the sermon this morning. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Your members are these things here, your hands, your feet, the parts of your body that can be used as instruments of righteousness unto God. It clearly shows the body can be brought under subjection and used to glorify God. It isn't just an empty shell here. It isn't just a useless uh, piece of, uh, of, of uh, apparatus. Our bodies form part of who we are and can be used properly to glorify God if they are subject to God's will. If, our, if we're subject to God's will and, and then our bodies are subject to our will. As such, we've got a duty of care towards our bodies. How we use them. Since the Bible calls for us to use our bodies as instruments of righteousness toward God, let's look at the present state of the body and how it relates to the believer. Now, I just want to, before I continue, I want to, uh, um, I want to help you understand as well. I want you to know that I use some of the material that Brother Carl uh, Abbott uh, developed as part of the Disciples Indeed program. And we've got that program, and that program is available to us on the church's website. If you want to know more, Brother Carl's material is, 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 is wonderful. All the lessons are on our website. You can, you can download them and do the lessons if you want to learn more about how the body works, how, the, how, how there's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. So I've used some of that material today, okay, just to encourage you there. All right. What is the body's present status as it relates to redemption? Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. What is the body's present status as it relates to redemption? Now, most of you know what redemption is about. Verse 22 says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit... Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our, what does it say there? Of our souls or our body? It's our body. The redemption of our body. The body's present state, the way we are at the moment, the, this body that we live in, this thing we call flesh and bones, is groaning along with the rest of creation, wanting to be redeemed. Wanting to be renewed. There is pain and suffering in the world. Would you agree with me? And we go through pain and suffering because of the fallen state that we are in. The body that we are in doesn't want to be this way. The Bible says that God has subjected it in hope as well. Pain for us is a normal part of life, but not the normal part that God created the world in. Suffering was not a natural part of God's original creation. Suffering came as a result of man's choice to turn their back on God. So yes, creation groans, struggles with decay and death, and that's what we see around us, and unfortunately that's part of what we are part of. That's, that's who we are. We are part of this whole creation as that is slowly disintegrating and falling apart. Everything in the world that lives eventually dies. It goes through a growth phase, it goes through a maturing phase, it lives for a certain amount of time and then it decays and dies. We are waiting for something to happen, the scripture says. The Christian has a hope, the adoption or redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for that to occur. 
the time when we will inherit new bodies, when we are going to be transformed, when this flesh, which is mortal and destined to die, will take on, as Paul says, immortality. It will take on an immortal aspect. We have spirits and souls that are immortal. They live on forever. But we don't have flesh that lives on forever. And God will complete that process and make us truly complete the way he created us originally. So this, at this stage, we're in a waiting mode for the redemption of our bodies. The body's present condition is found a few verses back in verse 10. Look at verse 10 there in chapter 8. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The body that we live in is as good as dead. It's decaying. It can't be fixed or tinkered with. It needs to be totally renewed. God has to give us new bodies. Our bodies at this stage, despite the salvation which we have, even though our, our spirits have been renewed and revived, resurrected as it were, our bodies haven't yet. Our bodies are still destined to die. This creates a problem in us because one part of us has been redeemed. One part of us has been renewed, but the other is still in a decay mode. So this causes a practical problem for the Christian. Turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 22. Paul says in verse 22, chapter 7, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law working in my members, that's his flesh, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. The flesh has been corrupted by sin. It has to die. It has to decay and has to go through the process of dying. But God has renewed our minds. God has renewed and revived our spirit so that the Holy Spirit is now able to work with us directly through that mechanism. Through his word, our minds are renewed. But we struggle. Anyone here doesn't struggle with their flesh? No, I haven't seen your hands go up. There is a struggle that occurs between the flesh and the spirit side of us. And the battleground, as I said to you last week, occurs in our soul. Our soul is that battleground between those, those, those two warring things. But you know something? In the end, what we are waiting for is the redemption of our bodies. So when we receive new bodies, there won't be any more that, that fight, that almost schizophrenic thing that we, that we struggle with. It's going to be a great day. The law of sin operates through our physical bodies still. If our bodies are not kept in check, they can be an avenue for temptation to enter. The body is an avenue which temptation can enter through. The bodies can all, our bodies can also be a, an avenue through which Satan can lure us to sin. And it, can, it is also a vehicle through which sinful, our sinful nature can also express itself. So is there any hope for our bodies? Turn to chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken, which means bring to life, your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. That is the final stage of our redemption. At this stage, God's spirit has brought to life our spirit, which was dead. But the final plan here is for our bodies to be made new. It's for us to be given totally new bodies. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies in the future. 
And this is the hope that we have. And the hope that we have as a foundation is because Jesus rose from the grave with a mortal body which became immortal. Do you understand that? Jesus rose from the grave bodily. Now there's, there are a few cults out there which teach that Jesus didn't rise bodily. That Jesus was playing a game of smoke and mirrors. That it was only his spirit that rose again. And when he showed himself to, to people, that he looked different. And that he was actually a spirit who was able to take on different forms as he went along. That would make Jesus a bit of a, um, a deceiver in my mind. Because when Thomas said, I won't believe it until I see him. Do you remember that? Until I see the holes in his hands and the hole in his side and his feet, I won't believe that he's actually risen from the grave. When Jesus showed himself, he said, Thomas, look. Look at the holes in my hands. Look at the holes in my feet. Put your, put your hand here, the hole in my side, and see that it's really me. I'm not a ghost. It's actually me. The wonderful thing about that, that whole thing is that when Jesus rose from the grave, he had, he had a choice to come up without those wounds. Because when we are resurrected, do, you, do any of you expect to have wounds? When we are given new bodies, do any of you expect who have physical problems now to have those problems later on? When we are resurrected? No. I expect to have a full head of hair when I actually get resurrected. Maybe God's going to not give me a full head of hair because I said that. But we expect to have perfect bodies when we are resurrected. Jesus had a choice. He didn't have to have holes still in his hands and his feet and his side. But he chose to be that way. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a smoke and mirrors that he was playing at. It wasn't some sort of an illusion. That was really him. And he chose to, to rise with those marks in his hands to show us forever. He chose to keep those wounds forever for us to show us how much he loved us. We will receive new bodies. And this hope isn't just for the Christian. This hope, believe it or not, is something that the Old Testament saints had as well. You might think the Old Testament saints didn't even think about that sort of stuff. It isn't, isn't spoken about very much. Turn back to Job with me. Job chapter 19, verse 25. Now, most of you are very familiar with the story of Job. One minute he finds himself all, all happy, well-established, good reputation. He had a wonderful family. He loved his children. He, had, he was quite a wealthy man in his, uh, in his society. And then in a very short amount of time, he loses. He loses his family. He loses his uh, property, his wealth. He loses respect. He's living, he goes living in a, in a, in a dump. Okay? And he loses his health completely. But in the midst of all that pain and all that suffering, Job had, amazingly, a confidence in something. And he says in verse 25 of Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not other another, though my reins be consumed within me. You think about that for a moment. Jesus had not come on the scene, and Job was confident that his Redeemer lived and would one day stand upon the earth and he would see him in his own flesh. Even though he knew he was, going to, he was going to die and the worms were going to eat him in the grave, he knew and was confident that one day he would stand up and he would see his Redeemer. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? 
You think today, if Jesus hadn't come, or Jesus was still destined to come, what confidence would you have in that? For us who know that the Redeemer has arrived and we know what he has done, we know we have the bigger picture here. But for Job, and Job was probably one of the earliest books ever written in the Bible. He didn't have all the letters and all the wonderful uh, uh, books that we have in the Bible. He probably had next to nothing to refer to. Yet he knew. The relationship that he had with God, he knew that he would one day have a new body. That he would one day see God in the flesh. That is a, for me, that's one of the greatest illustrations of faith that I see in the Bible. In the midst of all the trial and tribulation and suffering that he was going through, he had this faith that he would see God with his flesh again, even though he was going to die. Without all the other stuff that was happening around him. Now we have a hope. We have a hope based on what we already know. We know that Jesus has come to the earth. We know that he's died for our sins. We know his promises, his direct promises to each and every one of us. That gives us an incredible hope that the world doesn't have. And Romans 8.24 says, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is as seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. That's what hope produces. Patience. And the hope that the Bible speaks about here, about in the end that we will be redeemed and we will also be given new bodies, our bodies will be redeemed. That hope is not just some fairy tale hoping like, oh, maybe it might come to pass. I really hope it does, but it may not. That hope is not the sort of hope that the Bible's talking about here. The hope that, that, is, that Paul speaks about here is a confidence, the same confidence that, that Job had, that I will one day see my God with my own eyes, with a new body. And if you have that hope, it gives you patience. Patience to endure, patience to persevere. If you know something to be true, in the future, you will endure the pain to get to it. You will endure and persevere if you know something to be true. Living, the Lord, living for the Lord is not always the easiest thing to do. In fact, it's often the most difficult thing to do because it goes directly opposite to the way everyone else is living. But you know something? If you know that in the end... You will see Jesus with your own eyes and that you will be redeemed. Then this life takes on a very different complexion, takes on a very different aspect. We have been raised, as it were, from the dead again. We've been given a new start in life. It's something the world doesn't understand. If we're certain about the future, if we know that the promises of Jesus are true, then we will be willing to wait for the, the, the eventual reality of it. And this reality we call the resurrection, which includes the rapture as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If the promises of Jesus are true, if one day we will be resurrected, if one day the redemption of our bodies will take place, then what we do with our bodies now is very important. What we do with them now becomes very critical. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committed fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, there's some, some very important points that this passage brings out. And this is all in the context of why it's important for us to use our bodies a certain way at this particular stage, during this part of our existence. The first one is, the body was not created for immorality. It was created for the Lord. We were created for the Lord. Inasmuch as our bodies are decaying and dying and, and, and have been tainted with sin, God didn't create us to sin. God created us for himself. That's the first point. When we were created, we were created with a body to serve the Lord, to worship him through that body, to render service to the Lord, means that it's done in a way that is pleasing to him, within the boundaries that are set by him. God set certain boundaries for us to live in. Go outside of those boundaries and you suffer the consequences. Not only just of judgment, but also of the reaping and sowing part of things. God knows where we are, how we are to live, and what's best for us. Our physical bodies can be used to glorify him by our actions. If they're in line with the expectations that he has and the laws that he has set. Coming to church and worshipping God, for example, the way we do, is one way we use our bodies to glorify God. And there are many other ways we can use our bodies to glorify God. Sharing the gospel, helping those in need, praying, spending time in prayer, reading God's word. The use of our body to glorify God. But immorality does the exact opposite of glorifying God. Acts of immorality are the use of our bodies outside of the boundaries that God has set for us. It involves the use of our bodies in ways contrary to the laws of God. Contrary to his expectations. And when we commit acts of immorality with our bodies, what we are primarily doing is worshipping ourselves rather than the Lord. Acts, sinfulness, iniquity and acts of immorality, when you boil it all down, is a decision to worship us rather than to worship God. We become first. We are the ones. We have to please ourselves rather than pleasing God. We determine our own boundaries to live in. We become our own gods. That's where immorality is the exact opposite of using your body for the Lord. So the first point, the body was created not for immorality, but for the Lord. The second one, our bodies are imperfect, as imperfect as they are, are members of the body of Christ. Now that's a huge thing to try to grasp here. But God has in a way, when, when Christ died on that cross and rose again and we became Christians, God has somehow attached us to him. Our body, this flesh that we walk around in, is not ours it belongs to him. Our body belongs to the Lord and, have been, and our bodies have been joined to him in a special way. We are, as it were, if you look at this thing as a whole picture of every Christian around the world, we are the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are the parts of his body that is manifest in this world. That's why what we do with our bodies reflects on who he is. 
We represent in our bodies the body of Christ in the earth. We are here, therefore, to do his will. That's why Paul brings up the example of fornication to a more specific form. Where a man joins himself to a prostitute or a harlot for the sake of pleasure. Paul says this is something that is totally contrary to the way a Christian should live. Since the act of sexual union joins two people together, which should only be done in the union of marriage, anything outside of that is fornication. It's only within a special bond of marriage that sexual union should occur. But fornication here joins the body of a person, let's say a Christian, to the body of a harlot or a prostitute. And Paul says, that's a terrible thing. He says, God forbid that that should happen. Because God has made us a part of the body of Christ. He's made us part of him. If you go and join yourself then to someone like that, you're joining him, as it were, to them. The exact opposite. Our bodies are the members of the body of Christ. The third thing is, we are a temple of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost now lives and resides within us. This body does not contain just a soul and a spirit. There is someone else who actually lives within us. Another being. The Holy Spirit of God actually lives within us. And our bodies are, as it were, a temple that he lives in. God hasn't chosen to live in, 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 in uh, houses or buildings made of brick and stone and wood. God has chosen to live in the people that he has redeemed. Sometimes I wonder whether we would live differently if there was always someone around with us. If you had someone next to you all the time, watching what you were doing, watching what you were saying, looking at the way you reacted to certain things, looking at the way, places you went, things you looked at, things you observed and saw, sometimes I wonder whether, whether we would change the way we lived. The sad thing is we actually do. Sad thing is we actually do have someone who is with us all the time. Not only just outside of us, but inside of us. Who goes everywhere we take him. Who sees everything that we see and observe. Who spends time in places that we spend time in. Who knows what we are thinking in our minds, what we are saying in our hearts. The feelings that we, that we bring up within ourselves. Let me ask you a question. Knowing the spirit of, of the living God lives within us. How aware are we of that? How important is that to us in determining what we do now and in 10 minutes time and in one day time and in three weeks time? Do we take that into account? when we make the choices that we do. Might we do things a little bit differently? Say things a bit differently? Go to places that are a little bit different? Knowing that we have one within us who is there with us all the time. And finally, Paul says that we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. Our bodies were purchased by someone else. You might think, oh, that's a bit harsh. What do you mean I'm not my own? Surely I've, you know, God freed me and now I'm a free being. Well, before you and I were redeemed, the Bible says we were slaves to sin, slaves of Satan. We had no choice, bound and chained and destined for hell. Now Christ comes along and he rescues us. 
He redeems us. He pays the price for our freedom. But the Bible says that now we are servants of righteousness. What we are free now, what we are, the type of freedom we have now is to worship and serve God. That's what we've been freed to do. We are now free servants of God. When Christ purchased our salvation, he purchased us completely. We are now servants of God. And the wonderful thing is, the one who we are servants to loves us, cares for us, gave his life for us, and now promises us future glory in heaven. That's a good trade, wouldn't you say? It's a pretty good trade. Since we are created for the Lord and we are members of the body of Christ, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit and have been bought and owned by Christ, then Paul beseeches us to do something. Since we, we know those things to be true, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, and God has been very merciful to us, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That, finishes, that sentence finishes off really well, I think. It's only reasonable that we do these things. It's only reasonable that we present our bodies as living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Not dead, because we're still alive. Even though our bodies are slowly dying and they are still, they are still alive and useful. That's why we are a living sacrifice. When he says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, we're meant to be holy. Holy means something that is separated to. God has separated us for himself from the world. God calls us to sacrifice our lives daily, to be holy and separate from the world, and we are to be acceptable to God. The amazing thing is that God has already made us acceptable in Jesus. Because Jesus purchased us and we are now in him, we have been made acceptable to God because of what Christ has done for us. The only reasonable thing we can do when we think about what's been done for us is to give what we have to him. That's this. That's our bodies. This is a decision that needs to be renewed. A decision that needs to be made but renewed every day. And Paul says, according to my earnest expectation of my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. The highest calling of the Christian is to magnify Christ in their lives through these bodies. That Christ will be exalted and glorified is the highest calling of every Christian. Paul wanted his body to be used in such a way that when they saw him, they would give glory to Christ, glory to God. There is no, nothing better that you can do in your life and nothing better you can do in your death than to glorify him. This is the highest calling, to live for him because of being redeemed. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Only finished. Paul had a confidence that whether he was living or whether he was dying, what he wanted to do with his life was to glorify and magnify Christ. And he had that confidence. And he says in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that, Whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you have this confidence today? 
Is that your confidence? That you would rather be absent from your body so you could be with Jesus? Is that your confidence? If you have this confidence and trust in Jesus, then you will continue to live your life. Or if you don't have it, if you don't have this confidence, you'll continue to live your life in fear. That's the only logical conclusion to not having a confidence of what's going to happen after you die. Fear of death and dying. Fear of disease. Fear of the unknown. But you don't have to live in fear of these things. Rather, the Bible says, there is one whom you should fear. There is only one, and that's God himself. Jesus told his disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There is only so much that, the, that man can do to you. Sure, they can kill you. They can kill me. But in the end, every good person and every evil person will be resurrected with a new body. Not just the saved, but the unsaved will receive a new body as well. It's after the resurrection that people should be worried about. And there are only two types of resurrection the Bible speaks of here. And when Jesus says, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they which have done good, unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of damnation. You see, there are resurrections for everyone. Everyone gets resurrected. One is a resurrection to life, and one is a resurrection to damnation. If you haven't received Christ this morning, if you don't have him as your confidence, then there should be a level of fear because you will be paying for your own sins. And the Bible teaches us that every person is already guilty before the Lord because of their sin. And fear of the Lord, which is the first fear that, you, that a person should have, should lead you to repentance. An admission of guilt before God, that you've broken his laws and offended his holiness. A level of sorrow for having done it. And a definite desire to turn away from sin and to turn to God for his salvation and righteousness. When a person is forgiven by the Lord, saved by the blood of Christ. When they have committed themselves to the care and redemption offered by Jesus Christ. Then that fear which you have about death and dying and what's going to happen in the future should be gone. We sing this hymn and it's, and it's very, very true. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and then grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. It was grace, it's the grace of God that a person first learns to fear. But then when a person puts their trust in Christ, that fear goes. They have nothing to fear anymore. Not what man can do to you, not about the future, not about the past. You don't need to bring the past with you anymore. God has dealt with it. Have you accepted the grace of God this morning? Have you accepted the offer of salvation that is only found in Jesus Christ? Why not accept it if you haven't done it? Why live in fear of death? Turn to him now and receive the redemption of your soul, the renewal of your spirit, the promise of a new body, free of pain and suffering. If you need to speak to the Lord, don't delay. Don't waste time. Do it immediately. Confess your sin. Repent. Receive the gift that he offers. The Bible promises that whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Give him all your guilt and shame. Let him deal with them. There's no more need to carry them anymore. If you'd like to pray for your salvation today, if you'd like to receive the, the offer that Jesus gives, 
and seek someone who can help lead you in that prayer. Christian, are you living your life as a daily sacrifice? Do you know now the importance of your body and how it should be used? Do you have sin that needs confessing? Have you been using your body in ways to honour the Lord? If not, now is the time to change. You can change. God promises it. God bless you. Thank you.